yeah, as uh, Rafaela mentioned, I'll be talking a little bit about the unintended impacts of technology. And I thought I'd start with a little story uh, to, I, to illustrate why I'm talking about this topic. Uh, so when I was a child, I grew up in Manchester in the UK. Um, and I went through a phase of describing myself as half British, half Bangladeshi, because I was growing up between two cultures. My parents were both from Bangladesh, I was growing up in the UK, and the only way that my mind could make sense of this by, was by saying half-half. In my mind, they needed to, my identity needed to add up to a whole, therefore two means halves. Um, at home, we had both languages. We thankfully had more Bengali food than British food, um, and I was pretty immersed in both cultures at once. I described myself as that until I realized that I didn't actually have a half for, Bang for Bangladeshi, given that both of my parents were from there. Um, so surely that made me a whole. But I also didn't feel entirely comfortable describing myself as fully Bangladeshi while growing up in, in the UK. Now, looking back on that, I realized that my sense of self was also shaped in some way by the formal identification documents at play. I only had a British passport, not a Bangladeshi one. And that made me feel like I didn't quite have the right to claim that, uh, to claim Bangladeshi citizenship or Bangladeshi as part of my identity. Uh, nowadays, as an adult, um, that internal conflict, at least for me, has been largely resolved. I feel completely comfortable flitting between the two cultures. Uh, and I'll have moments identifying more with British culture, if I hear someone talking about Blue Peter, a TV show, show I grew up watching, or if I smell lamb biryani somewhere, I'll feel very Bangladeshi and very hungry. Um, that ability to self-identify is what makes us human. The fluidity of changing identities is a core part of how we grow and change as human beings, no matter what our passports might say. And it's that conflict that I wanted to discuss today, how the identities that we claim and feel are a core part, are shaped and influenced by what I'm calling identification technologies. Think about passports and registration systems, national identification cards. Ultimately, those identities and those technologies are shaped by the institutions that control and issue those technologies. I'll explore how labels and categories are a powerful tool that can change how we see and behave, not only ourselves, but with each other. And I'll review how in the past and present, and probably near future, uh, identification data has been weaponized to create divisions and also been used as a tool of inclusion. So nowadays, identification technologies like this uh, very old passport are primarily controlled by large institutions, governments, companies, uh, international agencies, if you're a refugee or stateless person, issue registration documents that are hugely valuable for you. Because of the way that our bureaucracies are set up, the institutions who have the authority to grant identification documents hold a great deal of power in shaping our lives. Think about how you got here today, the documents that you had to show, or how you participate in your country's governance. In fact, I'd say that those documents play an outsized role in our lives, determining where we can travel, where we can't, what services we can access, and what, what we can't, and in some ways, who we are. Here's a quote from 2012, uh, from the United Nations Refugee Agency, describing the reaction of a Senegalese refugee upon receiving their biometric ID card. They said, at least I have an identity now. I exist. I don't doubt that, that, that this person truly felt that, nor that getting that ID card really made a positive impact on their lives, on what happened, the systems that they could access, the services that they could access. 
But I do worry that we've created circumstances under which a person wouldn't consider themselves to have an identity without an identification document being issued by a refugee agency. Let's consider another part of the identity documents ecosystem, passports. Nowadays, we consider um, foreigners to be people who are foreign or people who are from a different country to the one that we're referring to. So French people are foreign to Nigerian people are foreign to Chinese people. But there's a fantastic book that delves into the history of how all of this happened, the history of passports. It's called uh, The Invention of Passports by an academic called John Torpy. He describes how as, as late as the 19th century, uh, people ref foreigners were considered to be uh, people from neighboring provinces. People from neighboring provinces were considered to be just as foreign as people from neighboring countries. There's many factors that have changed since then, not least the establishment of nation states. Um, but what also happened as part of this establishment of nation states was the issuance of uh, passports. The idea of a shared citizenship, a shared identity for people from the same country. Alongside passports being a tool to control movement, um, also, they also gave people living in the same country a shared identity in a way that they hadn't had previously. Nowadays, our nationalities also have a, an outsized importance in how we relate and move in the world. The labels that we grew up with, these labels of citizenship or country, determined not at all by anything that we've done, but by luck of the draw of where we've born, by some lines drawn on maps by old white men, combined with government and institutional powers, affect how we behave, how we see each other, and how we see ourselves. As a Brit, one of the most jarring things about Brexit, and there are many jarring, terrible things about Brexit, is that, officially speaking, from October 31st onwards, I'll no longer be a European. I can't quite imagine what that'll feel like now, but my guess would be that removing a shared identity that theoretically unites British people with other Europeans will only contribute to anti-immigrant sentiment that is spreading as we see across the continent, indeed across the world. Turkish author Orhan Pamuk wrote in The New Yorker a few years ago, a passport is not a document that tells us who we are, but a document that shows what other people think of us. I'd say the same stands for identification cards as well. And ID cards, as non-standardized documents in the same way that passports are, are much easier to change to adjust how institutions are seeing their populations, as he puts it here, and consequently to change how people see each other. Uh, just one example of this. During the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, identifying people by their so-called ethnic group served for some as an, as, as an effective death sentence. To trace how this happened, just quickly, um, we have to go back a little further. The, in, in 1933, the Belgian colonial government introduced ethnic group identities to identification cards that they were issuing in Rwanda. By doing so, they introduced a rigid racial concept uh, of a rigid racial concept of group identity where it hadn't previously existed. The post-colonial uh, Rwandan authorities decided to retain those group identities, and then they used these classifications to facilitate identification of victims, and as a consequence, the genocide took place in a terrifyingly systematic and incredibly organized way. Before the Belgian colonial government, these ethnic identities didn't play a prominent role in how people saw each other within Rwanda. To go back to how Pamuk put it, the Belgian colonial government saw the Rwandan population within these really rigid group categories, so they put those groups front and center on identification documents. The act of doing that shaped how people saw each other, 
And those groups then became, uh, as I said, an, a, a death sentence for those with the wrong ethnic identity. Today, nearly 30 years later, we've shaped our societies not to acknowledge, reflect, and learn on how identification has been weaponized in the past, but somehow in a way that gives identification documents even more importance. And now what we've done today is added digital systems to that. Around the world, having the right identification documents is a prerequisite in participating in society. Uh, for example, having a birth certificate in order to get a school place, or having proof of address to open a bank account. In some of this, in many cases, some of this information is entirely, uh, entirely required. For example, a government, a government needs to know how many people there are, how much they're earning in order to um, know how much tax people should be paying. But I worry that we've gone beyond seeing uh, these documents as bureaucratic necessities and only collecting the information required to trying to collect as much information as we possibly can. There's also a lack of agency in how people themselves, people like you and I, can shape what those official identification documents look like. Just one more example here. Uh, take, for example, the Rohingya refugees. Uh, this is a picture of a refugee camp that they're living in in Bangladesh. They fled a genocide in Myanmar in 2017 and are now living, uh, many of them, up to, I think, about a million are in just one refugee camp in the border of uh, Bangladesh and Myanmar. What they're asking for is recognition of their right to citizenship and also just recognition of their community, of their ethnic identity as Rohingya. On the ID cards that, they're, um, that are issued from Bangladesh, they're being labeled as being from Myanmar. On the ID cards issued by Myanmar, they're being labeled as Bengali. Beyond the bureaucratic consequences of how their identification documents are issued, the fact that neither country will issue citizenship nor acknowledge that they have been living in Myanmar, in some cases for generations, this also comes down to a persecuted community wanting to define themselves for themselves. They fled physical violence after having their villages be razed to the ground, having many of their com community be killed. And now they're facing another level of bureaucratic violence, of having their identities be denied. They're fighting for the right to be able to self-define in a way that actually affects their lives. And it's not only nation states or institutions like UN agencies who are controlling the labels that we put on ourselves and each other. Uh, genome testing companies like 23andMe have brought new dimensions to how people consider their identities. Here's a sample ancestry report, as they call it, uh, which gives all sorts of information about who people are. There are many, I have many issues with this kind of report. I'm just going to go into a couple of them here. Um, and essentially, what it comes down to is they're pushing this idea, this entirely false idea, that there are biological differences between races. If it's possible to identify as here that someone is, I don't know, 5%, 5 5.5% broadly European, it's not a far stretch to say that you could look for someone that has white DNA. And indeed, white supremacists love this kind of tool. The report also suggests categories that, if you think about it, just don't really make sense. What does it mean to be, I don't know, less than 1%, 0.1% Mongolian? As, as long as humans have been on this planet, we've been moving, we've been migrating. So what's the special, what's the time at which we pause that migration and pause those borders and say, this is what we take for these, this, this, to make this report? Who, who gets to decide those borders? Who gets to decide who is truly Mongolian? How many generations do you have to go back for your data to be 100% Mongolian? 
I'm just picking Mongolian, it could be any of these. Studies have also shown that learning and reading about DNA testing uh, increases one, one's belief in essential differences between racial groups, differences that aren't real. White supremacists, as I mentioned, are really keen to get their identities categorized and to use that as part of their argument. All of this is essentially eugenics for the 21st century, with an ounce of digital data and magical digital technology. The analysis is also drawn from a really limited pool of data, and as a consequence, the results actually change as the company gets more and more data. For example, right now, they have much more data on Caucasian uh, people of European heritage, whatever that means, um, than they do on African or Latin American or Asian uh, people. So the conclusions that are drawn from this data, as they affect non-European countries, might be totally wrong. And finally, to my bigger point, how is this kind of mistake-ridden analysis affecting our identities? Other companies are also capitalizing on how people who have, had, who have uh, paid 23andMe to have their ancestry report done uh, might begin to see themselves and how they might now begin to sit, spend their money in a different way. For example, Airbnb has a deal with 23andMe, uh, whereby you can send Airbnb your ancestry report, and they design what they've called heritage travel trips that help you connect with your ancestry. And I'd, uh, you know, also, I assume, opens up a whole new market for Airbnb, and a whole new yeah, market segment for them to market to. To me, there's a... So, so 23andMe say, we're clear up front that DNA is not identity, DNA is not culture. But to me, there's a huge disconnect between this statement and actually how they frame and sell their results, and indeed what you'll learn from having your ancestry report uh, done. As um, British science journalist Angela Saini puts in her book, really good book, called Superior, The Rise of Race Science, um, Ancestry testing really is ridden with controversy from the very roots of it to what's being done today. Uh, she writes that the tests fortified the assumption that race is biologically meaningful. It's not. And that if it's possible to categorize something, we assume that there is something to the categories. This is yet another example of how data brings a kind of legitimacy to an exercise that should have very little. Our identities aren't something that a company can tell us, nor something that another corporate identity can help us find with a, an incredibly overpriced trip. So how is all this any different to how identification data has been used in the past? Um, adding digital to identification technologies brings a number of new challenges that I'll go into now. For one, a scale that goes far beyond uh, what was possible with paper identification systems. National governments are really vying to be the one who holds the largest ID database. I believe the Indian government is winning right now uh, with over a billion entries in their national ID system, Aadhaar. Secondly, access to digital systems, digital databases can be granted far easier than access to analog systems. Databases can be copied and shared, um, and it means that it can be kind of impossible to know who has access to a certain entry and who has copied it. And then, um, then comes the challenge of removing yourself from that system. So it introduces the challenge of permanence. Once you're in a database of the size we've been talking about today, and once it's been copied and shared, it can be really hard, often impossible, to remove yourself, to remove how you're categorized in that one system um, yeah, in the long term. So the fluidity that I talked about earlier of being able to self-identify and to change that identification over time as your sense of self changes 
gets lost with digital systems that don't have that intentionally built in. There are some really cool um, exceptions to this rule. For example, in Uruguay, a new law was passed so that transgender people can self-identify their own gender on official documents and indeed change their legal name without having to bother going to a judge. Um, digital systems also mean that if there is a security leak or breach, the consequences are much more severe, especially if biometric data, so fingerprints, iris scans, your facial image uh, is associated with that information. If there's a biometric database leaked that has your personal information, there's no way that you can change that without doing something drastic like burning off your fingerprints. And actually, people have, in some cases, had to do that or tried to do that. And finally, as we've discussed with many different examples, identification data provides a fig leaf, a distraction for powerful institutions to exercise that power in different ways, in invisible ways. It brings a legitimacy when there should be none. As Pamuk said, passports are just what other people think of us. The data gathered by these institutions does not have to tell us what we think of ourselves and how we think about other people. Identification technologies, be that registration exercises, issuing passports, genome sequencing, or something else, are just that too. They reflect the biases, the desires of people who are in positions of power who get to design and institute those technologies. The people designing those technologies are just that, people who have their own social and cultural context and their own belief systems that we may or may not agree with. This path of letting identification technologies define us is a really risky one. We risk losing ourselves and our ability to determine ourselves who we are. We risk not being able to change and adapt those identities based on our own reality. Being constrained by the limits of technology and data in how we see each other is not progress. It's a choice we have. We don't have to judge each other by what passport we hold or what lists or databases we're part of. We can just see each other as human beings who share some pretty core attributes at heart. Too often, progress is a way to describe those in power getting what they want. The introduction of digital technologies masked as progress, which do nothing but raise walls between us, and so discord between populations, is definitely not progress. Ultimately, what I've talked about today comes down to holding human power accountable in the decisions that we make and making sure those decisions reflect what we want from our lives. So to end on a note of optimism, uh, one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Thank you.